he said to go and talk to Barira, who was Barira? She was the Khadima. She was the, they say, maidservant in the sense that she was the one helping Sayyidah Aisha out with daily chores and tasks. And she spends, spends lots of time with her. So she would know best her behavior when she's not in the presence of the Prophet So this is where we left off in the story. And he met with Barira and she exonerated Sayyidah Aisha too. And she said, I know of no fault except one fault, Ya Rasulullah. When she's kneading the dough to make the bread, sometimes she falls asleep. And when she falls asleep, the little goats or sheep come in and they steal the dough and run off with it and eat it. That's it. So at, this is where we left off in the story. So today, inshallah, we're going to finish the story all the way to the end. So when the Prophet ﷺ received this advice from Usama and Ali and went to speak with Barira, after all of that, he called a general assembly in the masjid. Everyone came, muhajirun and ansar, including munafiqun. And he stood on the minbar and he praised Allah Ta'ala and he said, Ya ma'ashar al-mu'mineen. O gathering of believers, من يعذرني من رجل بلغني أذاه في أهلي Who will excuse me from a person who has hurt me with regards to my wives? Whatever I do, you have nothing to blame me with now. If I were to do anything to this man, who is this man? The one who started the rumor, Abdullah bin Ubayy. If I were to do anything to this man, then you cannot blame me. He has affected me, he has slandered me, and he has even reached my wife. Can anyone blame me for anything I do to him now? Who will give him an excuse? He says, by Allah, I only know good about my wife, and they have mentioned a man with her concerning whom I only know, of good, I only know good of as well. Right? And there's a lesson here. We still haven't gotten to the part of the story where the Prophet ﷺ receives the wahi. But he's angry. And he's on the minbar. And he's saying that who will blame him if he does anything to this man who started the rumor. So the lesson here, even before we get to the exoneration, the lesson is that good character will protect you. Good character will save you at the end of the day. Because Sayyidah Aisha has an established reputation of good character among everyone. Everyone who is asked about her exonerates her. And they speak highly of her. So when you have good character, it will save you in tough situations. Because you have an established reputation that is good, and you will benefit from that reputation later on when things get difficult. On the other hand, if you have a bad reputation, a reputation of bad character and evil, then you should only blame yourself when people speak ill of you. right? And we see that playing out with Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salud. So the lesson here is we have to really, really be mindful with keeping our good reputations not for the sake of just seeming like good people, but because it is what is valued in the sight of Allah, while also recognizing that when you have good character and you try to maintain a good reputation, that will ultimately save you. When there comes fitna and strife and controversy within families and communities, the person who has the track record of good character, publicly and privately, that will come and save them ultimately. But when a person has a mixed track record, good character here, bad character there, good character in public, bad character in private, or mixed character in public, when things happen, when fitna arises, that bad character and bad reputation is going to turn around and bite them. It's going to make things more difficult for them. And they have no one to blame but themselves. So we get to this part where he gives this sermon. After the Prophet ﷺ said this, Usaid bin Hudayr, who is Ausi, he's from the tribe of Aus, he stands up and says, I excuse you, Ya Rasulullah, if this person is from the Aus, I will strike him down. I will strike him down myself. 
And if he's from my brethren of the Khazraj, then tell us what you want us to do and we will do your bidding. Right? Now, where is Abdullah ibn, ibn Ubay bin Salud in all of this? Which tribe does he belong to? He's Khazraji. So this is Ausi. He's saying, well, if he's one of our own, we'll take care of him. And if he's from one of those guys, from the Khazraj, you tell us what to do. We'll handle it. You see what's happening here. The old tribal Jahiliya is starting to resurface a little bit. So he says that. And when he said this, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah radiallahu anhu, who's Khazraji, he stands up and says, Wallahi kathabt, you have lied. You have lied. You cannot kill him, nor are you able to kill him. If he was from your tribe, you wouldn't like that he would be killed. Right? So Sa'ad ibn Ubadah is Khazraji, and Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul is Khazraji. He doesn't have an alliance to Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, knowing him as a munafiq. He's not in allegiance to him in his nifaq. But you see, it's the tribal allegiances. They're very hard to be completely upended and thwarted. They still, they're still there on the surface, and they rise. So at this stage, Sayyidah Aisha, relating the story after the fact, she says, before this incident, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah was a righteous man, but the tribalism of Jahiliya overtook him. The Hamiya, the tribalism and the bigotry of the tribalism of Jahiliya overtook him in this moment. So Usay ibn Hudayr says, if he's from us, we'll take him out. If he's from the Khazraj, tell us what to do. We'll do the same. Sa'ad ibn Ubadah says, no, you're not going to do that. You, don't, you can't. And if he was from your own, you wouldn't do it, right? And when he said this, Usaid bin Hudayr replied, Rather, you are the liar. We will kill him. You are only a munafiq defending another munafiq. So now you see the passions of the Aus and the Khazraj are starting to rise. The passions are flared up. The Hamiya of Jahiliya is arising once again. They're about to fight each other as Rasulullah is standing on the mimbar. He had to calm them down and get them to become quiet so he could resolve the argument. So Sayyidah Aisha is reflecting on this. These are human beings and they have human feelings, human attachments to tribe and family and those things rise up from time to time. The order of Allah Ta'ala is not to extinguish the ties of, of kin and tribe, it is to uh, guide our behavior and not allow those ties to blind us to the Quranic realities of establishing justice and doing things that are right. So Sayyidah Aisha continues, I continued to cry that day, and my tears would not stop flowing until I believed that my liver would split open due to my tears. While I was sitting and crying, my parents were with me. And one of the Ansar women asked permission to enter, came inside and started crying with me. And this is a beautiful reflection because it shows you the compassion and the empathy of the women of the Ansar, such that one of them came in just to sit with her and cry with her, share in that pain, and just be with her. So you see the character of these women of the Ansar, their sisterhood. She continues, while we were in that state, the Prophet ﷺ came to us, gave salam, and sat down. Now he had not sat with me for the whole month while these rumors were being spread. For this whole month he had not been inspired with revelation concerning my matter in any way whatsoever. The Prophet ﷺ praised Allah after he sat and he said, Amma ba'd which is, he, he would say this often in the sermons and in the speeches. He says, Amma ba'd, as for what follows, I have heard about you such and such things. So if you are innocent, then Allah will clear you of this charge. And if you have slipped into a sin, the wording is very precise. If you have slipped into a sin, in kunti al-mamti bidhambin, fastaghfiri rabbak, or fastaghfiri Allah. If you have slipped into a sin, then seek Allah's forgiveness and repent to Him. 
For whenever a servant does a sin, acknowledges it and repents, Allah accepts his repentance from him. And when the Prophet wasallam stopped talking, Sayyidah Aisha said that she stopped crying until she could no longer even shed a tear. So she's now reached the stage past crying where she can't even shed a tear. That's how much pain she's in. Now there's a question here, and the question is taken from the wording of the Prophet ﷺ, in kunti al-mamti bidhambin. The question is, did the Prophet ﷺ know that she was innocent of this charge, or was he unsure? And if he knew that she was clear of this charge, why did he say, if you have slipped into a sin, seek the forgiveness of Allah? You have to pay attention to the wording of the Arabic and understand what the words mean and their Quranic context. Because from this, we understand that the Prophet ﷺ did not think she committed any indecency. But when he says, in kunti al-mamti bidhambin fastaghfirillah, it means if you have slipped into any sin, He's talking about the possibility of her falling into some minor sins. Because al-mamti, what is the verbal noun of that? Lamam. What is lamam in the Qur'an? Allah says, if you, you, your sins will be forgiven if you avoid the major sins. Right? Illa lamam. Right? So lamam here is referring to as minor sins. So he is describing the possibility of her having fallen into minor sins not the possibility of her falling into major sins, much less one of the worst of the major sins of the Mubiqat, that of Zina al-Muhsan, of adultery. And this is noted by Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi al-Ma'afiri in his commentary on the Sunan of Imam al-Tirmidhi in his work, Aridatul Al-Ahwadi. He says, قَوْلُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ قَوْلُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَا عَائِشَةً إِنْ كُنْتِ قَارَفْتِ أَوْ ظَلَمْتِ This is another wording of the same narration. If you have done anything. He says, لَمْ يَرِدْ بِهِ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ قَطْ أَنَّهُ الْفَاحِشَةً When he said this, never once did he intend to refer to meaning adultery. He says, وَمَنْ قَالَ ذَلِكَ فَقَدْ كَفَرَ كُفْرًا مُبِينًا And whoever says that, whoever says that he believed that and is suggesting that, then they have disbelieved in a clear way. فَإِنَّهُ مَا بَغَتِ امْرَأَةُ نَبِيٍّ قَطْ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُصَلِّطَ عَلَى فِرَاشِ رَسُولِهِ مَنْ يُلَطِّخُهُ وَهُوَ قَدْ صَانَهُ عَنْ أَنْ تُنْكَحَ أَزْوَاجُهُ مِنْ بَعْدِ فَكَيْفَ so he says here, uh, this is because there is not a single wife of any prophet that has ever committed adultery. There's a narration that mentions this. This is from the khasais of the prophets. One of the unique things given by Allah Ta'ala to the prophets and messengers, all of them, is that their wives are secured from ever committing adultery. Not all of the wives of the prophets are righteous, are they? We know the story of the wife of Lut, alayhi salam. She was punished for her allegiance to Lut, right? Those people. Nevertheless, she's still secured from adultery, right? And that's not a securing that is necessarily even for their sake personally. It is out of honor for their husbands, right? So that their husbands are not dishonored by their wife committing that kind of indecent act. So he says uh, here, and it is not fitting that Allah would uh, place on the bed of the Prophet ﷺ anyone who would uh, shame him in such a way especially when Allah has safeguarded the wives from ever getting married to anyone after him. So what say you of someone committing adultery with them? If Allah Ta'ala has made it such that they cannot be married to anyone after the Prophet ﷺ, and that is the command of Allah, 
What about them committing adultery or that being allowed or facilitated? So the point is made here that when the Prophet ﷺ says, if you have slipped into something, some sin, seek Allah's forgiveness, he is not suggesting if you did what they said, then just seek, seek forgiveness and repent. He's talking about other minor sins, right? He's keeping it open. Because no revelation has come yet to explicitly exonerate her. So he's speaking in general terms. Because what more can he say? But this adds to the shock. The shock to say the Aisha. Because what we have here is the first time she's hearing the Prophet ﷺ admit to having knowledge of the rumors. Before this, she never heard him say anything verbally acknowledging his knowledge of the rumors. She just observed it from the behavior. But now he's acknowledging it verbally. And that's what made it so shocking for her. Such that all the tears dried up. She couldn't even shed another tear. So she continues saying that she turned to her father. And she says, respond to the Prophet on my behalf. Say something. And he says, I cannot speak right now. So then Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha turns to her mother Umm Ruman and says, respond to the Prophet, say something. Tell him I didn't do this. And Umm Ruman says, what can I say to the Prophet So Sayyidah Aisha says, I was still a young lady at the time. And I had not memorized much of the Qur'an. So I couldn't remember the name of the father of Yusuf. What's the name of Yusuf's father? Ya'qub. She, so she said, I, she said, I know by Allah that you have heard these rumors. And that these rumors have settled in your heart and you have believed it. If I were to tell you that I'm not guilty, you wouldn't believe me. And if I were to admit to a crime that I didn't commit, then you will believe me and think that I did it. So all I can say to you is what the father of Yusuf said, because she can't remember his name. Sabrun Jamil. Well, Sabrun Jamil. So patient, uh, beautiful patience. Wallahu al-musta'an ala matasifun. And I seek Allah's help concerning what you describe. So the, the question here that keeps coming back time and time again, especially in the commentaries, is did the Prophet ﷺ have doubts about her fidelity. There's two positions among the scholars. Uh, one position is that there is never from him any direct accusation. That Obviously that was not the case. But there's two positions about whether there was a doubt or the entertaining of a possible doubt about whether she did it or not. The first view of scholars is that he never once doubted her fidelity. He never once suspected her of infidelity at all. What that means in the context of the story is that before the verses of Qur'an in Surah Nur were revealed, he was absolutely certain of her innocence. Because he knew, based on the revelation, we know the hadith that mentions that the prophets, wives, all of the prophets, their wives are secured against infidelity. So he knows that. That is something unique to the prophets and messengers. He knows that about them and knows that about himself. Therefore, he knows with certainty that all of his wives are secured against this. It's not possible. Right? This is the first view. So why is he communicating in the way that he's communicating? The answer is that he is under divine command. He is under divine command and cannot issue a judgment on this matter until he receives explicit divine revelation. He's waiting for that revelation to come. He cannot say anything until that confirmation comes in the Qur'an. So that revelation of her innocence revealed in Surah An-Nur, that will then be, he, that he will receive in his heart, and that he will then recite publicly to the community, that will have a greater impact than simply saying, I know she's innocent. He could have said that. According to this verse, the first view of the ulama, those scholars to say that he never entertained doubt even once, they say, yes, he knows that she is innocent, but he's under the divine command. And if he was to say what he knows to be the truth, 
that she is innocent? Of course, the believers would believe, right? Those of strong iman would believe. But what is more powerful? That he simply says she is innocent or that he recites verses of Quran from divine speech, kalamullah, exonerating her directly. That would have a far greater impact. This is according to the first view that he knew that she was innocent from the very beginning. Citing this uh, view, Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he quotes Imam Ibn Abi Jamrah, whom we've quoted several times in this class. Ibn Abi Jamrah says, وَفِيهِ أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ كَانَ لَا يَحْكُمُ لِنَفْسِهِ إِلَّا بَعْدَ نُزُولِ الْوَحِي بِأَنَّهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ لَمْ يَجْزِمْ فِي الْقِصَّةِ بِشَيْءٍ قَبْلَ نُزُولِ الْوَحِي he says, one of the benefits you can extract from this hadith is that the Prophet ﷺ would never issue a judgment concerning matters that affected him personally except after revelation was received, after revelation descended upon his heart. Because he, in the story, did not assert a position one way or the other until revelation came. Right? This is what he says. So that's the first view, no doubt whatsoever, but he's under divine command and he's waiting for wahi. The second view is that there was an element of doubt, but not the way many people think. An element of doubt in the sense that if you have a scale, imagine you have a scale, and one side is 70, the other side is 30. One side is 80, the other side is 20. In the scale, you have tasawi or rujhan. You know, it's either going to be tilting on one side or the other, or they're going to be equally balanced out. Some of the scholars, they say that he entertained a possible element of doubt, but it wasn't like the scale pans were equal on both sides. Like, maybe she did it, maybe she didn't. No, it was a tarjih towards her being innocent. We can't give a percentage here because it's not math, but you could say 80-20 or 90-10. And that 10 or that 20 on the other side of the scale pan is the element of, of doubt because nothing has been revealed yet. And those scholars who take this view, they say that this is likely before Allah revealed to him that all of the Prophet's wives are protected from adultery. And I saw the look on your face, so there's your answer right there. That's why it's a possibility according to these scholars. Not, they would never say that he would know that and yet still entertain this doubt. So the doubt is entertained as a slight element. It's a small percentage in the scale. The scale tips overwhelmingly in favor of her innocence, but there's still this element. And they say this would have been before it was revealed to him by Allah that the, the wives of all of the prophets are protected from adultery. And also because there's no isma, there's no divine protection for anyone besides the prophets. And because he knew that his own positive opinion of Sayyidah Aisha would perhaps not be enough to settle the matter once and for all and to end the fitna, he's having to wait for explicit wahi to settle everything so that all of this goes away. And this waiting for the wahi, that was a, it was a month, this waiting was a test for the Prophet ﷺ. It was a test for Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha, and it was a test for the entire community. So there's a, there's a wisdom in that delay because things are brewing and people are responding in this way and that way. And there are lessons to be learned from the responses that took place over time, lessons that perhaps would not have been learned if the revelation came immediately after the rumor started. It's not just the rumor and responding to the rumor. It's also educating the ummah about how you handle rumors and how you have good opinions of people and whether you spread things or you silence things. You know, There's a whole thing playing out here. So... Uh, going back to the story, Sayyidah Aisha continues. I turned around on my bed. Allah knew I was innocent of this charge, and I knew that Allah would reveal my innocence. 
However, by Allah, I never thought that Allah would reveal Qur'an concerning me. I thought myself far too low in the sight of Allah that Allah would speak about me directly. Rather, I was hoping that perhaps the Prophet ﷺ would receive wahi in the form of a dream exonerating me and declaring my innocence. So here you see, you see the trust of Sayyidah Aisha. She knows she's innocent and she knows that Allah would not dishonor the Prophet ﷺ uh, where this thing is not settled in a clear manner. She also has humility because she's, she's telling this story after everything has already happened. And she's saying, I, I thought that the revelation perhaps would come in the form of a dream because that's a portion of Nubuwa. The wahi takes the form of dreams as well. I never imagined that Allah would reveal kalam, divine speech concerning me. I thought myself too lowly that Allah would reveal ayat of Quran about me. So here you see the humility of Sayyidah Aisha as well. But subhanAllah, Allah did not reveal just one verse declaring her innocent. He revealed 20 verses, 20 ayat declaring her innocence and the consequences of this offense and the lessons we derive from it as a Muslim community. So when the revelation happened, Allah Ta'ala conveyed to the heart of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam these ayat in Surah An-Nur. Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam began to laugh out of joy and happiness. After a whole month of rumors, a whole month of being sick and crying, of people spreading tales, finally these verses were revealed. When the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came to see Sayyidah Aisha after the ayat were revealed, he said to her, Ya Aisha, Allah has declared your innocence. And here we get to a very interesting part of the story. He says, Allah has declared your innocence. He's in the house with her, along with them are Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and Umm Ruman, the parents of Sayyidah Aisha. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said this, Aisha said, my mother stood up and told me, Qumi ila Rasulillahi wa Stand up for the Prophet and thank him. But you have to understand Aisha's situation. She's going through this emotional torture for a month. And after all of this pain, she hears ayat of Quran revealed about her. She is in a state, a hal. So when she hears her mother say, stand up and thank the Prophet she says, la, no, I will not stand up. I will rather, I will thank Allah. Rather, I will thank Allah. Now I want us to stop here. It's very important that we stop here because some popular speakers including some scholars, they have misunderstood this part of the hadith. And they have interpreted it in a way that is exactly the opposite of what is actually being conveyed here. They completely missed the mark. Because they read this part of the hadith and they framed it as Aisha quote-unquote, responding to a higher authority. And I'm quoting someone who said that. Or refusing the Prophet ﷺ. That is inconceivable. So what do the ulama say about this part of the hadith? Imam Qadir Iyad, rahimahullah, he mentions that Umm Ruman's statement, Qumi ila Rasulillahi, Stand up for the Prophet ﷺ means stand up, praise him, and kiss his head for him having given you the glad tidings of Allah's blessing upon you. Imam al-Sanusi, rahimahullah, you know he has a commentary on Sahih Muslim. He says in his commentary that this phrase, Qumi ila Rasulillah, he says it means praise him and kiss his head and hand and foot 
because this tremendous inaya, this tremendous divine concern shown to you by Rabbul Alameen was but by the blessings and nobility of the Prophet In other words, he is the vehicle for conveying the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is the wasita. One of the great uh, later scholars, Sheikh Muhammad bin Tahir al-Kattani rahimahullah, he mentions in his work, Matali al-Sa'ada, he says that Umm Ruman directed Aisha to witness the wasita, the, the, we could say the medium, the intermediacy of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi because he was the sabab of her exoneration. He was the means, the sabab for her being declared innocent. And it was upon his blessed tongue that her innocence was declared. That's why she should thank him. How was the Qur'an conveyed? Through the Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. يَسَّرْنَاهُ we have only made the Qur'an easy by means of your tongue. So he says, nevertheless, Aisha, he says, was in a state of annihilation. And this is a, a word, it's a term. And he used the words tadalli and fana. Basically, she's in such an intense state because there's all this pain and suffering for a whole month. And then Kalamullah is revealed about her explicitly, 20 verses. It's as if she only sees Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's her state. Right? So he says, she was in this state and she said, By Allah, I will not stand up for him and I will praise none but Allah who revealed the verses proclaiming my innocence. So Shaykh Muhammad bin Tahir Katani says, listen very carefully, the position of Aisha's mother in this incident was a'la. It was loftier, وَأَكْمَلْ and more perfect than Aisha's position. Why? Because she recognizes this is the favor of Allah and she recognizes that it is through Rasulullah who conveyed the kalam of Allah. That is أَعْلَى وَأَكْمَلْ That is greater and more perfect. He says the position of her mother in this incident was loftier and more perfect. Khilafan lil ubbi. He says, contrary to the position of uh, Al Alama al Ubbi, who was a commentary on Sahih Muslim, who said in his commentary on Sahih Muslim that Umm Ruman only instructed Aisha to stand up for the Messenger of Allah وسلم, because he was the means of her being ennobled by the revelation of verses, revelation speaking about her. But Aisha traced the matter back to Allah and did not take notice of the cause. And her station, he says, was loftier than her mother's station. So he's saying, no, that's wrong. He's saying that, Katani is saying, the station of Umm Ruman was actually, in this moment, superior. Why? Because superiority is not just being absent from creation and not giving them their rights. It's seeing that everything is from Allah and that everything that comes from Allah Ta'ala is mediated through these asbab. And He is the sabab, He is the means by which that revelation was communicated and by which you were exonerated. So Imam Sanusi, Jazahullahu Khairan, you know, in his commentary on Sahih Muslim, he says about this Her mother, Umm Ruman, directed her attention to the most perfect practice. To uphold the right of Tawheed by seeing all blessings as coming from Allah, who is alone and without partner, while also upholding the right of the Sharia, which is by thanking the one from whom the blessing has appeared. This is why the Prophet wasallam said, Lam yashkurillah, man lam yashkurinnas. He has not truly thanked Allah, the one who does not thank the people. This is what Imam Sanusi says. She was just overcome by a spiritual state. And that's why she said what she said. And in that position, her mother's position in that moment was superior because she saw it from both eyes, right? Zahiran wa batinan, tawheedan wa shari'atan. You know, that's the, that's the ideal. 
So Aisha continues. Uh, she says, Allah revealed 10 verses concerning this incident and 10 verses about the rulings that should be applied. And these are verses 11 through 31 in Surah An-Nur. So let's look at some of these verses. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ جَاءُوا بِالْإِفْكِ عُصْبَةٌ مِنْكُمْ لَا تَحْسَبُوهُ شَرًّا لَكُمْ بَلْ هُوَ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ لِكُلِّ مْرِئٍ مِّنْهُمْ مَكْتَسَبَ مِنَ الْإِثْمِ وَالَّذِي تَوَلَّى كِبْرَهُ مِنْهُمْ لَهُ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ Those who came with a falsehood among you are an usba, a group among you. Do not think that this was bad for you. Rather, it was good for you. There are lessons to be learned. And we benefit today from these lessons that were learned in that painful incident. For every person amongst them is what punishment he has earned from his sin, and he who took upon himself the greater portion thereof, for him is the great tremendous punishment in the fire of hell. This is talking about Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salud. Lawla, إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُوهُ ظَنَّ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتُ بِأَنفُوسِهِمْ خَيْرًا وَقَالُوا هَذَا إِفْكٌ مُبِينٌ Why, when you heard it for the first time, did not the believing men and women think good of each other and say, this is an obvious falsehood, an obvious slander. لَوْلَا جَاءَهُ عَلَيْهِ بِأَرْبَعَةِ شُهَدَاءِ فَإِذَا لَمْ يَأْتُوا بِالشُّهَدَاءِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ هُمُ الْكَاذِبُونَ why did, they not, why did they not bring forth four witnesses? And, they, when, and when they do not produce the witnesses, it is they who are liars in the sight of Allah. وَلَوْلَا فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ لَمَسَّكُمْ فِي مَا أَفَضْتُمْ فِيهِ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ Had it not been for the favor of Allah upon you and His mercy in this world and the hereafter, you would have been touched for that lie in which you were involved by a tremendous punishment. إِذْ تَلَقَّوْنَهُ بِأَلْسِنَتِكُمْ وَتَقُولُونَ بِأَفْوَاهِكُمْ مَا لَيْسَ لَكُمْ بِهِ عِلْمٍ وَتَحْسَبُونَهُ هَيِّنًا وَهُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ عَظِيمٌ When you received it with your tongue and said with your mouths that which you had no knowledge of, you thought that it was هَيِّنًا, insignificant, a small matter, not a big deal, but هُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ عَظِيمٌ It's a tremendous matter in the sight of Allah. وَلَوْلَا إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُوهُ قُلْتُمْ مَا يَكُونُ لَنَا أَنَّ نَتَكَلَّمَ بِهَذَا سُبْحَانَكَ هَذَا بُهْتَانٌ عَظِيمٌ Why, when you heard it, did you not say, it's not for us to talk about this? Glorified and exonerated and exalted are you, Allah. This is a tremendous slander. يَعِذُكُمُ اللَّهُ أَن تَعُودُ لِمِثْلِهِ أَبَدًا إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ Allah warns you against doing this forever, if you are indeed believers. وَيُبَيِّنُ اللَّهُ لَكُمُ الْآيَاتِ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ And Allah makes clear to you His signs, and Allah is all-knowing and all-wise. So we see that these verses are not just exonerating Sayyidina Aisha, but they give instruction to the entire Ummah, and they also tell us how we should respond internally and externally with our tongues, and how we respond to these kinds of claims. And we learn from these verses that if there is one witness, two witnesses, or three witnesses, but not four, and they go making these claims, it's haram for them to say anything of that sort. In the, and if they do not have four witnesses in the presence of a qadi, then they are considered liars and they receive a certain prescribed punishment in sharia. And in sharia, this is called, what's the word for this crime? Qadf. Qadf. Yeah. And Imam al-Qurtubi and others mentioned that qadf is not just uh, accusing chaste women of adultery. It also, the hukum applies to men too. It applies to men and women. So they were taught that if you don't have witnesses, then you're considered a liar and then there's lashing. And those people will get 80 lashes. Now in this incident, three of the sahaba were lashed. Three of the Sahaba were lashed. Hassan bin Thabit, Nistah, and Hamana bin Jahsh, the sister of Zainab. What about Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul? He wasn't lashed. Now you're wondering, well, he's the one who started it. Why isn't he lashed? And to understand that, you have to go back to Surah Nur, where Allah Ta'ala says, 
for every one of them who took upon himself the sin, he earns what he earns. As for the one who took on the greater portion of it, for him is the tremendous punishment in the fire. Meaning, they're lashed, and this is a kafara. This expiates the sin of spreading that slander. It's forgiven now because they've, they received their punishment in dunya through the, the had. He doesn't get it because even if he did, there's no kafara. There's nothing. It doesn't wipe anything out because he receives his portion in the hereafter in Jahannam. One of the lessons you can derive from this, because I saw your face, one of the lessons you can derive from this is that even great people can make very bad mistakes. Hassan bin Thabit radiallahu anhu, right? Nustah radiallahu anhu, Hamad bin Jahsh, the sister of Zainab, great people. And they have strong iman, but they fell into error. They fall into these mistakes, and through the lashing, they're forgiven. But subhanAllah, we actually learn our sharia through these kinds of events. It's through those events that the sharia is revealed, is because the verses are revealed in connection to those events. Laws are established, and we know the norm in sharia from those incidents. If everyone was just perfect, then... How do you deal with imperfect people later on? It's through those moments of imperfection and slips that the sharia is revealed, the verses of Qur'an are revealed detailing how to respond, and they're responded to in real time as those verses are being revealed. And that is how the sharia is detailed for us, and we learn. So there's a story here too, because of the three, we remember, we remember Mislah. Mistah, remember, he's a relative of Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu. And Mistah is miskeen, yani he's a muhajir, he came to Medina, he's faqir, he doesn't have a lot of money, he's a young man. And because of this, Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, would give him money to help him out. Because he's a relative, he would help him out from time to time. But after this happened, this is the daughter of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu. So this is Mistah who was spreading the rumor. He didn't start it, but he spread it around, shared it. After this incident and the verses were revealed, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu says, Wallahi, I'm not going to give him a single dirham or dinar ever again as long as I live. I'm not going to give him anything after what he said about my daughter. After he said this, Allah revealed ayat of Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then revealed in the next verse, وَلَا يَأْتِ لِيُولُوا الْفَضْلِ مِنْكُمْ وَسَاعَةِ أَنْ يُؤْتُوا أُولِ الْقُرْبَى وَالْمَسَاكِينِ وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَالْيَعْفُوا وَالْيَصْفَحُوا أَلَا تُحِبُّونَ أَنْ يَغْفِرَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ وَاللَّهُ غَفُرٌ رَحِيمٌ And let not those who have money amongst you prevent from giving their money to the poor and the migrants, the muhajirun in the path of Allah and their relatives. Let them forgive and let them overlook. Do you not love that Allah should also forgive you? So this was revealed in connection to Abu Bakr saying that he's never going to give Mustah any money. And subhanAllah, Allah is not chastising Abu Bakr anhu because it's in his right. If he wanted to, he could have denied him for the rest of his life. He's not entitled to anything. Allah is not chastising Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, but he is guiding him to a higher ethic, a higher character of forgiving and overlooking even in these extremely difficult circumstances. Giving him a beautiful reminder, would you not love that Allah also forgives you? Would you not love that Allah also pardons you? Just as you would love that for yourself, forgive him, overlook him. And after this verse was revealed, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu responded to the question. Allah asks a question here, not because he doesn't know. It is a, it's a rhetorical question and a question for encouragement. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, when the verse was revealed, he says, Bala, Bala, of course, of course I wish that Allah forgives me. And then he says, Wallahi, I will never stop giving Mustah money for as long as I live. I will never stop giving him money. So it's not just I forgive you, but you still can't have money. 
It's, I forgive you, and I will continue to give you money for as long as you live. I'll help you out. Because this is the higher ethic. Now, it's important to mention that it's not required for a person like that to forgive. Allah doesn't order him as a divine command. And we shouldn't put people into that position where you, you, you force them to forgive someone who was aggressed against them. It has to come from them. But Allah Ta'ala is encouraging it. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is racing for everything that Allah loves and praises. So he, of course, races to forgive Mislah and goes above and beyond by saying, not only do I forgive him, but I also will continue to give him money for as long as I live. So Aisha continues the story. And we're almost done. She says, the Prophet وسلم, had already asked Zainab bint Jahsh about me. And she was my main rival from among the Prophet's wives. He asked her, what do you know about Aisha? And what have you seen from Aisha? And Zainab bint Jahsh anha replied, Ya Rasulullah, I will protect my hearing and my seeing. Wallahi, I only know good of her. So this is the rival wife, but she knows the truth. So she speaks the truth. And then Sayyidah Aisha is reflecting on this story. This is the rival wife. She had a lot of jealousy for her. But she reflects on the story and says, Allah saved Zainab because of her piety. But her sister thought she was fighting on her sister's behalf by spreading the slander. Because Hamana, the third one, lashed the, the sister of Zainab. So she's saying that Hamana thought she was defending her sister Zainab you know, in the rivalry by saying, you know, yeah, this is what they're saying. This is going to put my sister in a better position. He says, she says Allah saved Zainab because of her piety, but her sister thought she was fighting on her behalf by spreading the rumor, and she was destroyed along, along with those who were destroyed. Destroyed here meaning she was punished and she faced the consequences for her actions. So you see here the evil of getting dragged into family conflicts without haqq. That we have families, we have relatives, and we're often asked to pick sides and support this one over that one. And when these things are done in a way that betray the guidance of Allah and His Messenger وسلم, it becomes a kind of jahiliyyah. So you have to transcend that. So she's saying that because of Zainab's strong iman, Allah saved her. And because of her sister's lower degree relative to her, she faced the consequences for spreading the rumor. And Urwa, who is a relative of Sayyidah Aisha, she, uh, he relates that Aisha, you know, later on, she did not like it when people would say negative things about Hassan bin Thabit and Nustah later on. Because some people, you know, the people who felt very strongly about this, they got angry with Hassan bin Thabit and Nuslah and were, you know, looking at them sideways, maybe saying some harsh words. Sayyidah Aisha, after all of these verses were revealed and after they were punished, she was not happy about people uh, treating them in that way because she believed that they were forgiven, they learned from their mistake, and people who have been forgiven, who have learned from their mistake and faced the consequences, should not be continually reminded of the bad thing they did in the past that they have transcended through tawbah. So that's a lesson itself. If someone has made tawbah, genuine tawbah, and they've changed their life around, it is not for anyone to continually remind them about their past sin. Oh, you know, back then, you know, you did that. Right? That's what Fir'aun did to Musa, السلام, didn't he? And it wasn't even a sin. Right? You did what you did back when you did that thing, when you struck the Coptic man and killed him accidentally. No, he's reminding him of something. Right? We don't do that. So she concludes by saying, the man they accused, who's the man they accused? Safwan bin Mu'aqqal. The man they accused, when the rumors were going, you know, we don't hear his part until the end. Where is he in all of this? We just hear the, the side of Sayyidah Aisha and the family. She says, when the rumors were going on, Safwan said, Subhanallah, Subhanallah, uh, glorified is the one in whose hands is my soul. 
I have never raised the veil of any woman in my entire life because he wasn't married. And subhanAllah, he was later martyred. He was shaheed. That was just innocent. It had nothing to do with any of this. Innocent man, even before the accusations came, he was clean. And after the accusations, he was clean. And Allah took him as a shaheed, radiallahu anhu. So this is the narration from Sahih Muslim of Haditha ifk the story of the slander of Sayyidah Aisha. There's lots of lessons you can derive from this. Uh, one, of the one of the main benefits we derive from the story is simply the evil of spreading gossip, the evil of spreading rumors. Another benefit from this story is how Allah Ta'ala tests His servants. أَشَدُّ النَّاسِ بَلَاءً الْأَنْبِيَاءِ the most intensely tested people are the prophets and then those most like them and then those most like them. He is the most beloved of, to, uh, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Aisha is one of the most beloved wives to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and you see how Allah tested the both of them immensely. This is a tremendous test. But as we see in the seerah and as we know from the Quran, whenever there is a test and usra, there always comes a yusra. There always comes the ease after the difficulty. So we see the ease comes after this difficulty. And we see how we are taught in this incident how we are to respond to similar situations in the ummah. We see how rumors can spread like wildfire and have second and third order effects. So, you know, there's the rumor and then there's the fighting that ensues when people are defending the accused or defending the accusers and the jahiliyyah that can rise to the surface. We see that happening in this, in this hadith. We see the benefit of verifying information, of waiting. SubhanAllah, time reveals, you know, with time comes clarity. And this is why the mashayikh, they say that if you're angry, if someone has upset you and you feel the need to respond to them, Wait. Wait. You may feel the drive to respond to them on the spot. Someone says something online, you don't like, you start typing up some response and it's all furious. Just put that in your inbox. Don't send that to anybody. Most of the time, after you let that sit for a week or two and revisit it, you will say, hmm, I want to change a lot of what I wrote. You will not be pleased to, to send what you initially wrote. So, and that goes for verbal speech too. Just wait. Time reveals, and as you wait, you get more clarity. So I'll end this, inshallah, with a concluding statement. And this statement is from uh, Al-Hafidh Al-Iraqi. Al-Hafidh Al-Iraqi, the great Hadith scholar, he says in Al-Tarh Al-Tathrib, or Tarh Al-Tathrib, he says about this story, Sarat براءة عائشة رضي الله عنها من الإفك براءة قطعية بنص القرآن فلو شك فيها إنسان والعياذ بالله تعالى صار كافرا مرتدا بإجماع المسلمين He says that the براءة, the innocence of Sayyidah Aisha رضي الله عنها from this accusation is a clear cut, unequivocal uh, certain acknowledgement of innocence. By the text of the Qur'an, Allah has declared her innocence. Binasir Qur'an, the explicit, clear text of the Qur'an, her innocence was declared. He says, so if any person entertains a doubt, and Allah's refuge is sought, if they entertain any doubt about her innocence, thinking maybe she's not really innocent, he says, That person becomes a disbeliever and apostate outside of the fold of Islam by the consensus of the Muslims. Right? So if anyone was to ever say that, they were outside of the fold of Islam. Why? Because her bara'a, her innocence is declared definitively in Surah An-Nur. So anyone who later denies her innocence is denying a clear-cut, definitive verse of the Qur'an. It's takthib lil-Qur'an. 
uh, anyone who has takzeeb, any denial of the Quran is outside of Islam. So we end with that note. And this marks the end of our discussion on this uh, very painful incident in the seerah that is nevertheless filled with benefits and lessons for us in the life of the ummah. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Right on time. One of the benefits of our is also that the Prophet had to wait till they were waiting for a month. And, and if it was was from himself, they would have right away like right. came up with the right. Like, the ulama mentioned this too. That wait, Right. Yeah. That's the point many of the ulama make. And it is this the authority of the divine speech in declaring the innocence has such an impact that it would have been far, it has a far greater impact than just saying she's innocent, move on. Because if that is said, the rumors still linger, but now the rumors are excised like a tumor in a very demonstrable way through not just one verse, but 20 verses in total, 10 exonerating her, and then 10 giving instructions about how to deal with this in the future. Yeah, I think it's better to frame that question outside of the context of this incident, yeah. but just in a more abstract way. If person A slandered the chastity of person B, and that person did not produce witnesses, and in an Islamic society where Sharia is enforced, they are lashed, and their witness testimony is no longer accepted, that lashing exonerates them of the sin. It's the expiation of the sin does that expiate them from the crime of causing hurt and harm and backbiting uh, from the hukuk of the affected members? Allahu a'lam. But we also see there's a social dynamic at play here. right? These, these crimes that have uh, prescribed punishments are crimes that have societal effects. They impact the society negatively. What are some of the other ones? Theft within certain conditions. Highway robbery, murder, what else? Slander of chaste men and women, right? These things have societal impacts. Uh, adultery, that, that, has a, that has a societal impact. Uh, Ibn al-Qayyim says that one of the reasons why in the Sharia, the prescribed punishment for adultery is so severe uh, with the rajim is because uh, just as that person has metaphorically demolished the home of the family through the zina, as if the home is now crumbled in on itself. The punishment fits the nature of that crime, even in the way it's carried out. So there's a societal impact. So there are sins that have societal impact and they have these prescribed punishments. Then you have the effects on the individuals. I don't. I, don't want, I can't say with any authority that, oh, everything is wiped away and they don't have any rights to claim on the Day of Judgment because with one crime, there may, become, there, there may come along with it several other sins that affect other people for which there is accountability unless they're forgiven, right? It's like the same for the other, the other crimes, right? There's the punishment as the, the deterrent in society and expiating the sin. Uh, then there's the other second-order effects that it has on the victims. I don't know the answer to that, but it would appear that a person has the right to forgive or to not forgive if it's beyond the crime itself that's been punished. Wallahu alam.
who was the accuser. Yeah, he didn't get that punishment. Yeah, he didn't get the punishment. And he basically started it. He lit the fire, but the ones who were taking it here and there were, were those three individuals. And as the verse mentions, the punishment for him is waiting in the hereafter, which is far greater. They had the chance to have that uh, wiped out, the punishment for that through the lashing. He doesn't get that opportunity. Yeah. So he, he probably thought he got away with it. Alhamdulillah.